0: Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One. I hate to say majoring in the minors on this particular program, but uh, technically that is the program, Proclaiming the One, majoring in the minors. We're taking a look at the different minor festivals, the things and worship services that are celebrated during the week and not necessarily on Sunday. And so today we are wishing everyone a Merry, Merry Christmas, Pastor. And a happy Chinook. <laughs> Sorry. Oh. Did you see that in the news? Yeah, the, I did. Uh, That, that I did. cracked me up. Yes. Uh, we are looking at the readings for the Nativity of our Lord. These are the readings for Christmas Day. Since most people that go to church, go to church on Christmas Eve, and... Uh, Many, many people don't even consider going to church on Christmas Day, one of the two high and holy feast days in the church, Christmas and Easter. Uh, A lot of people go on Easter. Not too many people go on Christmas Day. We, which we, is a shame. It's a, it's a it's, ginormous shame.
1: That's why you have that day off of work actually so that you could go to church because everybody went to church on that day so we better not have our stores and
0: and places of employment open. And uh, you know, I don't want to I don't want to turn this program into a um, you know, war on Christmas program because you know while, while things have enhanced there's there's nothing new under the Sun think of all the Christmas carols that don't mention Jesus think of all the Christmas programming uh, like on Hallmark that uh, have no church no Jesus no uh, no Christmas carols nothing like that mentioned uh, we have chestnuts roasting by the open fire we have sleigh bells ringling jing jing jingling and uh, Felice Navidad is about as close as you get and unless you speak Spanish you don't even know what that means so um, this is not there is nothing new under the sun and uh, this war on Christmas has been going on ever since Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden And I think we can just be that blunt and put that all to rest. We can come up with all sorts of anecdotal evidence. We want to examine the readings that are intentionally chosen for Christmas Day, the celebration of the nativity of our Lord. And, folks, um, I wish we had a 10-hour program instead of a 50-minute program so that we would have the opportunity to do justice to our readings today. They are that wonderful awesome and that great um vicar uh and again uh Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Steele. We serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. And, yes, we will have church on Christmas Day. We have for the last 25 years, and uh, we're not going to stop now. 9 a.m. on Christmas Day. Come join us. I guarantee you it will not be an overflow crowd. Uh, You'll be able to distance out and all that kind of stuff and hear these great texts and celebrate the Nativity of our Lord. The Holy Gospel that is selected for the Nativity of our Lord, John 1, 1 1-18, sometimes referred to as the prologue of John's Gospel because the 21 chapters that follow uh, all flow in some way, shape, or form out of what we have written for us here in John 1 1 to 18. So, Vicar, take it away.
2: In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known.
0: The Father has made known the Christ. I think that summarizes beautifully what these 18 verses from John chapter 1 are all about. This particular year, and I'm not sure when you're hearing this, but this particular year that we uh, are uh, recording this minor festival program, the Nativity of Our Lord, our Advent Wednesdays have been examining in great detail these, uh, these words from John chapter 1. And they have to be taken as a unit. It has been extremely difficult to preach on two or three verses from these, this 18-chapter prologue because everything hinges on the words that follow or the words that come before. It is such an amazing text. Pastor, I know you've preached on this text uh, multiple times. What are some of the challenges that you have found with regard to preaching on these 18 verses.
1: Well, I think you're right in saying that one of the challenges in preaching on these words is keeping it concise um, in such a sense that your listener can listen to the sermon and follow what you're saying and understand. I think it's also difficult to preach on these words and stay true to the theme of the day, which is the incarnation and the birth of Christ, uh, because there is so much more in there that you want to get distracted on and to go and preach on these different doctrines and ideas that are uh, clearly taught in this. Um, We have... uh, so much there you can't get it all in one bite and so uh to to manage to distill it down in such a way that people understand what it says but also um are able to listen to the sermon because it's not a three day long you you said earlier you know 10 hour episode of this program um you know to get it all in in a concise
0: way is very difficult i've been uh working through One of Luther's volumes, uh, his commentary on the Gospel of John, and he spends about, I think they're actually sermons rather than a commentary, but I think he spends about 120 pages on these 18 verses. And... uh, I mean, it's so wonderful, and it is so glorious, but it is so much to digest, and you just can't squeeze this into a 15- or a 20-minute segment or sermon. Um, Right off the bat, we have words that make us think of the book of Genesis and the beginning of Scripture. We have almost a riddle or a puzzle with regard to this thing called the Word. Vicar, what is going on here at the beginning of John chapter 1?
2: At the beginning of John chapter 1, what the Apostle John is doing is he is asserting the co-equality to co-divinity of Jesus with God the Father. And the way he does that is he's using the term the Word, which in the Greek is logos, which is a which was an idea and a concept that was floating around the uh, Roman Greek world at the time of reason, of logic, the thing that orders all things. And so what John is doing is he is saying that idea that orders all the universe, that word, that logos, is Jesus Christ. And in fact, he was with God at the beginning, and he is fully God.
0: It uh, It is amazing at the beginning of John... That John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, is teaching us about the doctrine of creation. He is teaching us about the two natures of Christ. He is taking a swipe at what later would be known as Arianism. All of these things are happening in the first two or three verses of this particular prologue here. And as you said, Pastor, that's not the primary thing that you want to talk about and preach on. On Christmas Day, you want to get to verse 14. You want to hurry up and and play the trump card. This idea that orders all things, this Logos, is God. And not only is the Logos God, he is with God. And so we have the doctrine of the Trinity being taught. And this Logos, this idea, is not a created being because nothing is created that hasn't been created through this Logos, including the Logos himself. So there goes Arianism out the window, along with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and any other sects that would deny the divinity of Jesus. But the bottom line of this prologue is verse 14. Pastor, what am I talking about, and why is verse 14 so crucial?
1: Well, verse 14 is the one that gets uh, quoted and uh, used, and it's this idea that the word that's being talked about that has its roots in Genesis uh, um, and and is contained throughout all Scripture, that word, um, who is God takes on our human flesh, and dwells among us. And even uh, the word here is makes his tent among us, uh, the tent being the body of Jesus. And, uh, uh, and so that's the idea here is the incarnation, Jesus Christ, true God, born of the Virgin
0: Mary in human flesh. The, uh, this particular prologue, as it, as it kind of gives a map and an outline, for all of the chapters in the Gospel of John to follow just does such a marvelous and brilliant job. Um, No human mind could craft this. No human mind could have come up with this particular plan. What a a great testimony to the inspiration of Scripture.
1: And I I think that's really clear, too, in John's Gospel, is that he knows the Pentateuch and is finding the fulfillment of all of that in Christ, which is why uh, he begins with, in the beginning, just like the book of Genesis does. Now Matthew and uh, Mark also talk about the beginning. They do it in a different way. Matthew says the word Genesis, uh, Mark says beginning. But uh, John seems to find all the things in Jesus' life finding their source back in the book of Genesis. So we have, for example, the bread of life reminding us of the manna in the wilderness. We have the woman at the well, which is where uh, weddings uh, were arranged back in the the book of uh, Genesis and uh, in the Old Testament times. We have all these other references that go back to um, the way things were in the time of the Pentateuch, the uh, the patriarchs, and John is
0: finding the fulfillment of all the Pentateuch in the person and the work of Christ. One of the uh, major themes throughout the Gospel of John is this distinction, this uh, action between light and darkness. And that's where we want to pick up when we come back from our break. This is Proclaiming the One, majoring in the minors. We are looking at the Nativity of our Lord, Christmas Day, December 25th. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back.
3: K-N-N-A-L-P 95.7 FM Lincoln, Nebraska.
0: Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Steele. We serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Today we are parking the car on Christmas Day, December 25th, the Nativity of Our Lord. It is um, a more and more forgotten Day in the church here, more and more a forgotten festival, I would encourage you to consider being in God's house on December 25th on Christmas Day, the incarnation of our Lord. We specifically focus on the incarnation of our Lord. We'll have an opportunity to confess the Athanasian Creed, or as the uh, catechumens say, the really long one. And the Athanasian Creed really, really hits on a couple of the topics that we just don't have time to preach on or teach on with regard to John 1, 1 to 18, the doctrine of the Holy Trinity and an in-depth study of the two natures of Christ, the the bulk of the Athanasian Creed, uh, I'd say 80% is, uh, those two topics. And, uh, so we're looking now in this second segment, continuing our look at the gospel reading, John one, one to 18, John's prologue to his gospel, marvelous, marvelous words. And before we went to the break, I asked pastor about the theme that is carried out very, very well throughout the rest of the gospel this theme of darkness and light. We have it right off the bat um, in verse 4. In him, meaning the word or the logos, was life, and the life was the light of men. You may not know this, but this is where Concordia Publishing House got the name for Life Light Bible study is from this particular verse. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Pastor, what's going on here with this light and darkness? Is this, is this some kind of a nebulous, platonic ideal that we're, uh, we're supposed to be attaching our own meaning to? Or is there something tangible here?
1: Uh, no, I'd say it's not platonic, of course. It has its source again in the book of Genesis in the very... Uh, first day of creation when God said let there be light uh, and uh, and it was and it was good uh, and this is a, a great idea then that John is taking and, and and using that same idea to teach us about Jesus um, being light and and of course you know the interesting thing about light and dark is um, light spreads and wherever there is light there is no darkness but darkness is not able to do the same thing and so we're talking about the I mean, in a certain sense, I guess it is platonic when we talk about the battle between uh, good and evil that's going on in our world. But it's not platonic in the sense that there's a uh, equality between the two or that, um, you know, one is just the good and one is the bad and the two are yinning and yanging back and forth. Light Definitely wins, and light easily wins over darkness and can destroy darkness just by its very presence. And that's Christ, and that's what He's doing in the world, and that's why He comes, is to destroy darkness. The way He does so then is by going to the cross, taking our sins upon Himself, bleeding and dying and rising from the dead, so that we can have eternal life in His name.
0: So when I read these first five verses of John chapter 1, here's what I come up with, and I want your reaction to this. Jesus is the light of the world. We know that from John 8 and other places. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus created all things. Jesus is not a created being. He's God. So, Jesus, the light, creates light, and yet the light, Jesus, is not created. Is that the mystery right here? Well, I mean, I think
1: that's part of the mystery. Um, The mystery is so enormous that it's even difficult to put into words, right, that the all-powerful, uncreated, ever-existing God, uh, who is Jesus, uh, the only begotten Son of God, um, is able to take his all-present, all-knowing, glory, and become human, Uh, and not just possessing a human, but being human, and that that light that he creates through his preached word and through the work he does here is able to permeate the entire world following it. I mean, think about the ridiculousness of of Christianity. A, A Jewish carpenter from the first century A.D. has been a good teacher and the whole world has changed as a result, and it has, right? I mean, one-third of the world today claims Christianity as its religion. And that's not just in the West where we live. It's also in the East, like India. Uh, In China, there are some estimates that there are more Chinese Christians than there are people living in the United States. That's crazy to think about. Um, all from this one guy, and that's the thing John's trying to get across, that it's not just your average, everyday guy that this Jesus is. He is God, and he's trying to
0: explain it in as many ways as possible so that you'll pick up on that reality. So the Apostle John now introduces to us John the Baptist, but he doesn't really tell us much about John the Baptist because the Gospel of John and the Holy Scriptures are not pointing us to John the Baptist. John is not the light. So, what is the relationship, Vicar, between John the Baptist and Jesus, who is the light of the world?
2: John the Baptist is the promised forerunner in the Old Testament. God promises that he will send Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord. And so, John's whole life, his whole ministry, is only and ever to prepare people for the arrival of Jesus and to point him to Jesus and say, "Hey, this is the guy I've been preaching about. This is God's
0: son." He's a mirror, he's a reflection, he's not the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. Pastor, is that verse, verse 9 of John chapter 1, is that an allusion to objective justification?
1: Um It at least is setting the foundation for explaining uh, justification later on when we see the death of Christ, because it's necessary for God to come in the world uh, if he is going to die in the world. And so we have to get the incarnation right first before we can talk about justification and and that's what uh, john is attempting to do here and not attempting he's doing a very marvelous
0: job at it as well when i see enlightens everyone and then knowing that not everyone goes to heaven i can't help but think that two chapters into uh, after we read these words we get that great verse john three sixteen, for god so loved the world that he sent his son that whoever believes in him. So we've got objective and subjective justification all there. And again, this is setting the stage for it.
1: Yeah, and I think the idea that he enlightens everyone is a confession of truth in the sense that Christ has died for all sin, and there's not one sin left that uh, remains unforgiven. And in fact, the reason people go to hell is not because they sin, but rather because they don't believe in Jesus. Uh, And that's then the only unforgiven sin is
0: denying Christ and and rejecting his gifts that he freely gives. It goes on now to talk, I would would argue, about uh, subjective justification, The person and work of the Holy Spirit is prominent in the Gospel of John, and while he does not mention the Holy Spirit by name, he certainly talks now about the work of the Holy Spirit. He came to his own, verse 11, John chapter 1, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. He gave the right to become the children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Pastor, this reminds me a lot of the third article of the Apostles' Creed and how we believe, teach, and confess that I cannot believe by my own reason or strength.
1: Right, and again, we see the way that you do come to faith, and that is you are called, enlightened, sanctified by the Holy Spirit who is always, always, always uh, attached to God's Word. He's not just floating around and you have to get a butterfly net and catch the Holy Spirit. Uh, Wherever God's Word is, is in its truth and purity the holy spirit's there wherever things are done rightly in the name uh, of god and his name is hallowed among us the holy spirit is working faith and uh, john is a good lutheran and understands that
0: in verse 13 we're introduced for the first time in john to the word flesh who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man later on in john specifically in john chapter six we're going to get a lot of this flesh talk normally when we read and we come across the word flesh this is a reference to what pastor
1: well uh flesh would be like our our body our our created part of us and and uh and that's the idea here is that uh God, who is spirit, um, his only begotten son, Jesus, who shows up in the Old Testament in spirit form, now takes on human body, a a human being, and is completely and totally a human being. He is flesh who dwells
0: or tabernacles or tents in our midst. So when we're talking, and again, a contrast between the power of God and being born from God, specifically God, the Holy Spirit, and the will of man and the will of the flesh. Are we talking about uh, something that is divine versus something that is human, something that is perfect, holy, and sinless versus something that is contaminated and maggot-ridden because of our sin? Is that the distinction that's being put forward here? Between flesh and... Being born from above, being born of the Spirit. Well, I mean, so the
1: Word becomes flesh. And so in one sense, this is really more properly, uh, talking about the, um, annunciation in March, March 25th, when we celebrate that. Uh, in fact, you go to uh, Israel and you visit, uh, the town of Nazareth, the church that's built there says here is where the word became flesh. Um, but in the same sense, it's not done by human will. It's not as if Joseph, uh, said, you know, hey, Mary, let's, uh, get a little action before we get married here. Uh, and, and Jesus was conceived. It's not as if a Roman soldier, uh, trapped her and, uh, sexually assaulted her, it is by God's will that Christ becomes flesh. And then by extension, the same thing is true for us. The reason that we're saved is because God has called us, gathered us, enlightened and sanctified us. He has made us Christians. And so all the um, the thanks or all the, uh, the work has been done uh, by God, the thanks belongs to him. It's not because of ourselves
0: that we've been saved. It's only because of what God has done for us. When, uh, when we see the word flesh in Scripture, especially the New Testament Scriptures, we need to be very, very careful with the context because it can just refer to humanity. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Sometimes there is a specific meaning with regard to the flesh that that flesh is denoting sinful, corrupt human flesh. Jesus became flesh, but did not sin. Not once, not ever. And Jesus is still flesh, God and man at the same time, holy, perfect, and sinless. Again, part of the great mystery of the incarnation, the word becoming flesh and making his dwelling among us. Oh, so much word, so little time. We need to take a break. We're going to uh, keep right on plugging away when we come back, proclaiming the one, majoring in the minors. Christmas Day, we'll be right back.
3: And the you are listening to KNNALP ninety-five point seven FM, Lincoln, Nebraska.
0: This is Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors. Welcome back. We're taking a look today at the readings for the Nativity of Our Lord, Christmas Day. December 25th, proclaiming one Minor Festivals. I really hate to say Minor Festival with regard to Christmas Day. This is as major as it gets, and yet we rarely have an opportunity to look at these readings. In our first two segments, we spent all of our time looking at the prologue of John, John 1, 1 to 18. And we didn't do it justice. There's so much more to say. But we're going to move on, and uh, I'm, I'm going to ask the hearers and uh, my two cohorts here to uh, humor me and bear with me because I want to use our Old Testament reading from Exodus 40 to connect us back to John chapter 1. And I think that will be a, a helpful exercise for everyone involved. The Old Testament reading selected for the Nativity of our Lord, December 25th, Christmas Day, is Exodus 40, 17 to 21, and then 34 to 38. Vicar, take it away.
2: In the first month in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle, he laid its bases, and set up its frames, and put in its poles, and raised up its pillars, and he spread the tent over the tabernacle, and put the covering of the tent over it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony, and put it into the ark, and put the poles on the ark, and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, and set up the veil of the screen, and screened the ark of the testimony, as the Lord had commanded Moses." and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys.
0: What in the world is this? This doesn't have anything to do with Christmas. Ha 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 ha. Uh, this is an amazing text. And I don't know if you caught it or not, but it was in our first segment. When uh, Pastor Moline couldn't stick to the first five verses of John chapter 1, he had to jump the gun and go all the way down to verse 14, the uh, probably the most quoted verse from the Gospel of John, second only to John 3.16. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Pastor Moline says, Well, the word for dwelt is literally tabernacled, pitched his tent. And so as Vicar was reading our Old Testament reading, which seems completely disconnected unless you know that that tabernacle, pitch your tent word is the word that's used in John one fourteen, I counted one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight specific references to the word tabernacle or tent of meeting. And tent of meeting is the tabernacle. Is that correct or is that separate? Uh, yes. It's the same thing. Okay, and then there were also several pronouns that referred to the tabernacle, it, it, it. Uh, and so there's at least 10 references in these verses that Vicar read from Exodus 40 referring to the tabernacle. And so, Pastor, uh, you are our worship, tabernacle, historical expert at Good Shepherd, and I'm not saying that tongue-in-cheek, I mean that with every fiber of my body, can you in a couple of minutes explain to us what is going on in Exodus 40 before we connect it to John 1, what is going on with this tabernacle, glory, ark, uh, cloud, they, they went in, they went out. Can you give me a summation of what in the world is happening here? Yes, I can. Please do. <laughs> um, in,
1: uh, in the time of the Exodus, the people of Israel uh, leave uh, the land of Egypt through the Red Sea, and they enter uh, the wilderness, and as they're out there in the wilderness, God shows up and, uh, first off, he's leading them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night and protecting them and keeping them safe. Uh, and that's a visible manifestation of God amongst them. When they get to, uh, Mount Sinai, uh, God gives his word to them in the form of the Ten Commandments and also teaches them what their, uh, special lives are going to be like, how they're going to be a holy people set apart, uh, from the other people of the world for a specific purpose. That specific purpose, of course, is that the Savior, Jesus Christ, is going to be born among them. To begin teaching them about what the worship of the Savior, Jesus Christ, is going to look like, God also promises to continue to dwell in their very midst. And so he gives instructions to Moses that a special tent is going to be built in which he is going to dwell in their midst, in their very presence so that they can always know that he's right there with them uh, without having to just use the cliche that we use today, you know, God's with you. Uh, This is a very visible, physical reality that they're experiencing. And this tent is going to be known as the tabernacle. Uh, The tabernacle has a variety of... uh, parts that are put together to create this. First off, there's a tent wall that surrounds the entire compound. Inside of that, there is a movable altar, there is a lava or a washing basin, uh, and uh, there's space then to do sacrifices uh, at that altar and that lava. Then there's a tent within the tent wall uh, that is the tabernacle itself, built of two rooms, uh, the holy place and the most holy place. In the most holy place, you have uh, the Ark of the Covenant, where God physically dwells between the wings of the cherubim on the mercy seat, above which uh, the box in which is contained the Ten Commandments written on stone carved by Moses. Uh, You have a uh, manna pot uh, that exists there, and the budded staff of uh, Aaron is also in there. And then in the holy place, you have the table of showbread uh, and you have an incense altar and you have a menorah. Uh, And all these things are levels of holiness. So the most holy spot is the holy of holies. Hence the name. Uh, The next holy spot is the holy place inside the tabernacle. Then you have inside the tent wall where the sacrifices took place. And then you have the people of Israel uh, who are camped around it in an orderly fashion. And uh, then outside of that, you have all the rest of the world that doesn't know about God or at least believe in him. And the whole idea is, is that God is physically present in the midst of his people, Israel. And this is teaching us about Jesus, who is going to be very physically present in the midst of his people, Israel when he's born of the Virgin Mary uh, and grows up in Nazareth of Galilee and goes to Jerusalem and uh, is talking and, and meeting with people there, even as he goes to the cross, bleeds and dies and rises again. And so it is all prefiguring Christ and his incarnation and before we can have actually the God in the flesh bit that we talked about from John one and that we're celebrating at Christmas time, God sets the stage by teaching us how He's going to be in our midst um, in the Old Testament here in Exodus, and the Ark the, Te- the Ark of the Covenant becomes a main figure in the rest of the uh, time of the kings. We also would want to point to Jesus' own words, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rise it up. And he's not talking about the temple that replaced the tabernacle. Rather, he's talking about his own flesh. And so there is a connection where... All the tabernacle, temple things find their fulfillment in Jesus. And then uh, we talked about this in Bible study not long ago. Even the things we do in church now also look backwards to find their fulfillment in the person work of Jesus.
0: Thank you. Very, very well done and very concise. A couple of questions. Is the mercy seat the top? of the Ark of the Covenant, or is it something separate?
1: Uh, it is the top of the Ark of the Covenant. It's oftentimes called in Greek the hilasterion, or the the place um, where the, the blood was poured. And so um,
0: the... Let me wooden, stop you there. It's the place where the blood was poured. Yeah, okay, and that's go.
1: where I'm going. Um, the... The Ark of the Covenant is a, a wooden box coated in gold, uh, and on top of it is a lid, and the lid has two angels or cherubim with their wings uh, guarding your sight from the front or from the top of the box, and uh, that's the very place then where God physically dwelt amongst His people, and the angel wings guarded you from seeing God directly because that was bad for you. You 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 were ended if you saw God, and only the high priest was allowed. To to go in there uh, once a year on the Day of Atonement, and he would pour blood between God, between the angels' wings, between God's existence there, and the uh, mercy seat, uh, which underneath is the Ten Commandments, the law. And so, in a sense, the blood is being poured out between God and the law so that God's people can actually be holy and blessed in his sight. Um, And that's a really big thing that's important and is finding, again, its fulfillment in Jesus, whose blood is poured out between God and our sin uh, so that we can be holy and blessed
0: in God's sight. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And the animal sacrifices all pointed forward to the once and all, once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. Behold, John 1, just a few verses later from the prologue, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's all connected, folks. I've got one more question here. In uh, uh, verse 21 of Exodus 40, and it says and he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the lord had commanded moses what is this veil and screen thing pastor
1: well um in a sense it's a really fancy curtain um and uh you know in the time of moses it aha, is a aha. you've seen the movies where um, the person goes behind the uh, zigzaggy uh, board screen to change clothes, and they throw yes. the clothes over, and then they, you know, they come out wearing a different outfit. It's kind of a thing like that, except it is again separating. God from his people uh, and it's actually for his people's good. Remember we talked a minute ago, if you see God, that's bad for you because you're a sinner and you're ended. Uh, we see this with Moses or uh, sorry Isaiah when he sees heaven, he says, "Woe to me, a man of unclean lips. We see other people, they are um, unable to see God directly. He hides himself and that's what this screen is doing all the way up until Jesus dies on the cross, at which point it's ripped from top to bottom setting God's people free to get into the Holy of Holies. And that's key, to go in. It's not as if God can't come out. It's we're now allowed into heaven. Uh, the door is opened. The, uh, the words of Jesus, I stand at the door and hold it open. Uh, I'm not quoting it exactly from Revelation.
0: That's the fulfillment of that. So the screen and the veil from the tabernacle becomes the curtain in the temple, the very temple curtain that is ripped from top to bottom when Jesus dies on Calvary's cross.
1: And there's even, I mean, we could get into that even deeper. The design uh, that was embroidered on that temple curtain is really key because it had images of the heavens. And so it's even an idea that the heavens have been ripped open so that now we can get into heaven, which then also brings us to the baptism of Christ in the Gospel of Mark where the heavens are ripped open and God speaks down, uh, this is my son who I am well pleased with. Uh, That's the same thing that happens in our
0: baptism. You have to stop my brain is exploding from all of these gospel images from exodus 40 and john chapter one and now you're bringing in all these other sections of scripture oh folks if you're not having fun today uh i I don't know what to tell you this is as good as it gets proclaiming the one majoring in the minors christmas day we're going to take a break we'll be right back
3: U-K-N-N-A-L-P, 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska.
0: Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors. Today we're looking at the Nativity of Our Lord, December 25th, Christmas Day. For our bumper music today, rather than our regular Majoring in the Minors uh, theme song, we've been listening to Of the Father's Love Begotten, a uh, beautiful hymn, a haunting hymn, a hymn that, probably better than any other, points us to the Incarnation, Jesus pitching his tent among us for our salvation. Before we get into the epistle reading uh, for Christmas Day, which is quite short, uh, Vicar, would you uh, be so kind as to read the introit, which is a combination of Isaiah 9 and Psalm 98.
2: For to us the child is born, to us the son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace.
0: That's the introit for the nativity of our Lord, Christmas Day. Isaiah 9 is the, 9 verse 6 specifically, is the antiphon, the beginning and the end. And what is bracketed are the first four verses of Psalm 98. Psalm 98 may be familiar to our hearers, especially with a Christmas connection, because it is the basis of the hymn, Joy to the World. Oh, I thought you
1: were going to say because Handel used it in his fantastic uh, uh, musical movement. Uh, what's it called? Uh, his name shall be calleth.
0: Wonderful. A oh, little, little,
1: little, little counselor. Counselor. Yeah, no, that wasn't
0: the first thing that came to my mind oh. because I'm I'm not an intellectual like you. I'm more of a Cretan. Yeah. Um, uh, but joy to the world is a favorite Christmas hymn of many people, Pastor. I want to ask you about one thing in uh, that Psalm ninety-eight, where it says, "The Lord has made known His salvation," which is the revealing uh, kind of an epiphany thing, uh, incarnation thing. He has revealed uh, blah 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 his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Okay. I got to back up. Uh, That's not what I wanted to ask you about. The verse before, his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Explain that word picture to our hearers about how God worked out salvation through his right hand and holy arm. Well, it's all a reference to Jesus,
1: and it's not the only place in Scripture that does that. We also have, you know, for example, we read during the committal service, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly, the right hand of the Lord exalts, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly, I shall not die, but I shall live and confess the deeds of the Lord. Then we point to the grave and say, this is the gate to the Lord, let it, uh, uh, all the righteous Which shall pass Psalm through it.
0: Psalm 118. <coughs> Correct. And uh, oh. a portion of that Psalm 118 is the gradual for Christmas yes. Day. So folks, it's all connected. It's uh, all connected. We
1: we also have that same idea when we talk about the ascension of Jesus, that he sits at the right hand of the Lord, uh, and from thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. So when we talk about the right hand of the Lord, we're talking about Jesus. And so uh, God has revealed his salvation he's worked salvation by his right hand and his only arm that's jesus uh, crucified and
0: risen to take away the sins of the world god uses his right arm to punish and he punishes not you not me not the world but he punishes jesus on our behalf don't miss that connection on this christmas day celebration Okay, let's shift quickly now to our uh, epistle reading. It's quite short and uh, very profound. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7.
2: But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life.
0: You may recognize those words. Uh, One of uh, Luther's great proof texts in uh, the uh, section in the small catechism on holy baptism. Pastor, uh, we got Christmas Day. We've got John 1, 1 to 18. We have the word. The word becomes flesh. Uh, grace upon grace, darkness and light. We have the tabernacle, the tabernacle, the tabernacle in our Old Testament. The epistle reading is supposed to be a practical application. What's, what's this baptism text doing here for our epistle reading on Christmas Day?
1: Well, it has to do with the very first verse where it says, when the goodness and loving kindness of our God appeared. When does that happen? It happens at the birth of Jesus Christ. And so uh, it's not necessarily a practical application. I think that's probably overstated when we say that. It's actually, again, teaching us God's revealed will through his son, Jesus Christ, and pointing us to him again, and especially then at Christmas, um, connecting the waters of holy baptism to the birth of Christ, the incarnation, and the reality that we are now clothed in the robe of Christ's righteousness that covers all of our sin.
0: Well, the the practical application part is, you know, the Word became flesh, made His dwelling among us. Um, I can't I can't decide to follow Him. This this it doesn't come to me because of my own decision, not uh, not the will of the flesh, the will of men, but of God. And this this Jesus who tabernacled Himself am, among me uh, or among us, I want Him. How do I get him into my heart? Well, I can't do it. I believe I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. But, but the Holy Spirit. And here we have how Christmas Day, the incarnation of our Lord. And you can't have Christmas Day without Good Friday and Easter. It's, all, it's the whole enchilada, as Brother Kuhlman would say. This is how God delivers the incarnation. This is how God delivers Good Friday. This is how God delivers Easter Sunday. This is how God delivers the forgiveness of sins. This is how God delivers the deliverance to people that are in desperate need. He saved us. God is the one doing the saving. Not because of works done in us, but according to his own mercy. In other words, we didn't deserve it, but he saved us anyway. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace. Pastor, how does one become justified through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the washing of regeneration. How is baptism and justification connected? Well, in
1: the waters of holy baptism, God puts His name upon us the same way that a farmer brands his cattle or, or puts an ear tag on there. Says this person now belongs to me, um, and of course, you know you can wander off and reject that or pull a, uh, pull the ear tag out, I guess, if you wish um, to use that to the end, but uh, God puts his name upon the person. He clothes them in the robe of Christ's righteousness so that when God looks at the individual, he no longer sees their sin and their guilt and the terrible things that he's done, but instead he sees the forgiveness won by Christ on the cross. And he sees that when he looks at each person who has been baptized into his name. He pours out the word through the uh, scripture that is read and delivered into their ears. Faith comes by hearing and by hearing uh, the word of God. we, we see the Word poured out upon us as well when the Word says, Take and eat, this is my body given for you. Take and drink, this is my blood which is shed for you. In all these ways, the Word is poured out upon us so that we are continually brought into faith. And again, how does this happen? It is the work of the Holy Spirit attached to that Word. And that happens in baptism, the Lord's Supper, in the preached Word, in the absolution. All these ways, God brings us into the fold.
0: Pastor... Sometimes people will ask the question, do Lutherans believe in baptismal regeneration? And sometimes people don't understand the question because they don't know what that word regeneration means. It is in our text here in Titus chapter 3, by the washing of regeneration. what What does that question ask and how does a true Lutheran answer it? Well, uh, you got about a minute. The question is,
1: (laughs) I'll put it as briefly as I can. Yes, we believe in baptismal regeneration. Uh, Baptismal regeneration means that we are made alive in the waters of holy baptism and that we are Christians as a result of the waters of holy baptism. It's not our commitment. It's God's work in us, and that's really the key, is that he's
0: the one making us alive in baptism. Baptismal regeneration is denied by many people who would say that you have to say a prayer, you have to ask Jesus into your heart, you have to make a decision for God. And our epistle reading from Titus 3 and our gospel reading from John 1, to 1-18, emphasize completely that you cannot do that. You cannot make that decision. You are made a child of God by the power of God. This is God at work through the means of grace. These are the means in which he delivers the forgiveness of sins to you. That is the word of God and the word connected to bread and wine in the Lord's Supper, the waters of holy baptism, and the words of your pastor. Today, we rejoice in God's gift of the incarnation. We rejoice in God's gift of Jesus. We rejoice in the forgiveness of sins. God wants all people to be saved, and we pray that this gospel Christmas message would go out to the ends of the world. Vicar, would you be so kind as to bring things to a close by praying the collect of the day for Christmas Day, the nativity of our Lord.
2: Let us pray. Almighty God, Grant that the birth of your only begotten Son in the flesh may set us free from the bondage of sin. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.
0: Amen. Amen. For Pastor Moline and Vicar Steele, I'm Pastor Clint Poppy. Come join us for worship at Good Shepherd, Sunday mornings, 8 and 10, 30, Wednesday evenings, year-round at 6, 30, and on Christmas Day at 9 a.m. God's richest blessings in Christ.